Hello and welcome back to Legal Thinking with me, Liam Pape, and I am once again joined by my colleague Edward Wooten. Edward, how are you? I'm I'm good, thank you, thank you, Liam, thank you. Had a nice break. Uh, are we allowed to say where you were, or are the court proceedings uh, are, are <laughs> private and we're not allowed to declare exactly how long your stint with uh, Her Majesty's Finest was? Yeah, no, the uh, the stint was uh, a month off with my newborn child, so yeah. Oh. <laughs> I've been no, greatly no. misinformed. Anyway, welcome back. We had plenty of listener mail whilst you were away saying how much everyone missed you. Uh, I'll be sure to send at least a couple of sacks of that over to you. I'll yeah, brilliant. Things to deal with. Looking forward to it. Uh, this week, we have on the podcast an informative discussion about myocardial infarction, which, as you can probably tell by the name, is a serious heart condition, which can unfortunately be fatal. Um, the impact of the pandemic on the incidence of the condition and uh, treatment too. On this episode, Ed is joined by Joachim Stanley, a member of our medical negligence team, and consultant cardiologist Dr. Stephen Hewell, who has a specialist interest performing complex coronary intervention, so is well placed to tell us about all things myocardial infarction. Without further ado, let's roll the tape. Okay, so um, yeah, thanks for joining us, everybody. Um, so today we are talking about the treatment of uh, myocardial infarction. Hopefully, I'm pr- uh, pronouncing that correctly, um, and uh, its relation to coronavirus. So, um, as uh, some people have seen, coronavirus when coronavirus first became a thing, uh, uh, the relationship between COVID infection and subsequent myocarditis was noted, um, and sometimes they could develop myocarditis. Um, and basically, uh, I guess there's a relation to myocardial infarctions in there somewhere. So I, I, I guess the first question would be for you, uh, uh, Stephen or Dr. Hull, uh, which would you prefer? So just, <laughs> yeah, Stephen. Um, uh, first question is for you, Stephen. So if you could tell us a bit about myocardial, my, myocardial infarctions, how do they present uh, in who and what should doctors be looking out for? Okay. Well, thanks very much. Uh, You have pronounced it correctly. So myocardial infarction (laughs) is is a medical emergency and patients uh, present uh, unwell, unsurprisingly. Um, They commonly experience chest discomfort, um, which they classically describe as a tightening, uh, goes to the jaw, down the arm. Uh, But it's associated with things like breathlessness, sweatiness, nausea and vomiting, sometimes palpitations, sometimes dizziness. I have to say it's important to remember that that's the typical presentation, but um, patients may present atypically, and particularly women uh, and people of ethnic minority may not actually describe the classic symptoms. So, so clinicians should be alerted to the possible diagnosis in patients that have risk factors. And I want to touch on those because I think that's important. Obviously, as we get older, uh, the risk of myocardial infarction goes up. Male sex is also a risk factor, as is diabetes, mellitus, smoker, hypertension, hypercholesterolemia, and family history. But these are all the things that are taught in medical school. But I think what's less well recognized is that inflammatory conditions, such as rheumatoid arthritis, for example, um, can increase your risk of having a myocardial infarction. Atherosclerosis is an inflammatory condition. um, And and any inflammation, any inflammation can cause plaque rupture. So that's how patients present. Um, the signs are quite 
you know, patients just look unwell. And I don't think you necessarily need a medical degree to know when someone's having a, a, a medical problem like a heart attack. They look pale. They look ashen and grey. They may be struggling. They look they look unwell. Um, but they can have a number of other signs, um, high or low heart rate, high or low blood pressure. Um, but those are the kind of the classic symptoms and signs. Okay. Um yeah, so I was, I was going to pass it over to Joachim now, who probably who's a member of our um, medical negligence team, um, and I think he had some some questions as well. Yeah, well, I mean, moving on from that logically, um, we've now got a present a patient presentation profile to work with. How do you then confirm the diagnosis? Um, what do you look for, and what tests are done? Um, the key di- diagnostic test, uh, and it's often done by paramedic crews or emer- immediately in the emergency department, is the 12-lead ECG. Um, and we are looking specifically for ST elevation. To Can diagnose. you take us through what an ECG is? So it's an, uh, it's an electrocardiogram. It's taking an electrical recording of the heart um, from multiple different leads that are attached to the chest. <laughs> And by studying those leads, you can diagnose ST elevation, which is a sign that there's a heart artery that's occluded, uh, and it will give you some idea of the territory that may be affected. And that's the key um, diagnostic test that usually results in, if ST elevation is present, uh, with activation of what we call a primary PCI pathway. That's an emergency transfer to a heart attack centre for emergency invasive coronary angiography. And I think I'm right in saying that it's important to take a blood test as well initially. Is that right? You, you can. Often it takes a bit longer for the blood test to come back. And the blood test you're talking about is troponin. Um, sometimes, um, if the diagnosis isn't clear on the ECG, um, clinicians might wait for a blood test, but it's not necessary for the diagnosis of an ST elevation myocardial infarction. Frequently, we'll have a patient transferred to us who has not had a blood test, but has classic presentation with the ECG changes, and we will will accept them and treat them without a blood test. Okay. So the patient's now in hospital, um, and we're going to assume that um, the ST segment of the ECG is abnormal. What sort of treatment is then offered to that patient? So, I mean, patients will have medical therapy to start with, and they might have that in the ambulance on en route. And the key thing that we're looking for them to have is dual antiplatelet therapy, loading doses um, of um, aspirin, and usually the tocagrelor or prasugrel, although we can sometimes use clopidogrel. Um, so that prepares them, if you like, for what they need, which is uh, often the infarct-related artery being opened with a stent. Uh, so they go directly to the cath lab. Um, they have an, an invasive coronary angiogram, usually done through the wrist artery. Uh, we identify the blocked blood vessel in the heart, and then we open it up with balloons and balloon-mounted stents. And after the stenting's occurred, yes. I presume the aim of this would be to widen the blocked coronary artery or arteries, plural. That's right. Um, can the patient typically expect to go back to a pretty normal lifestyle and um, do they have to watch out for anything after this? So, well, the, 
opening the artery uh, as quickly as possible is really important to minimise infarct size. And if we are able to do this, uh, is a time-dependent um, treatment. So if we're able to do this quickly enough, uh, we can salvage myocardium. Um, and as a result, the heart attack is smaller. And then patients hopefully will have a better recovery with a reduced risk of <laughs> downstream events. And the downstream events are heart failure or rhythm disturbances. Um, the vast majority of patients, if we do, we are able to open the infarct-related artery, will make a reasonably good recovery uh, and should hopefully be able to lead a reasonably normal life afterwards. And myocardium is synonymous with heart muscle, isn't it? That's right, yeah. Right. So it's time-dependent. So the more swiftly one acts, the greater the chance... I guess from what you're saying, of salvaging as much myocardium as possible um, because the damage to it from not having blood flow will be minimised. Um, patients have a, a relatively normal um, lifestyle after that. Um, and do they have to be on the lookout for any symptoms afterwards? Do, is, is there anything they need to be aware of? Well, they usually started on some medications to what we call secondary prevention medications to reduce the risk of it happening again and to help the heart cope with what has been some damage. Okay. Um, so uh, you're touching upon a really important thing, which is that patients go to rehabilitation and they get the support they need to both understand what's happened to them and what changes they need to make to their lifestyle. For example, if they're smoking, um, if they have um, you know, an unhealth, unhealthy lifestyle, what they can do to help themselves. Um, so there is, a, there is a, a, some education around um, post-heart attack care. Right. But they don't tend to be followed up in uh, local cardiology services and then with their primary health care physicians. So um, that's the usual uh, management afterwards. Okay. But yes, you know, part of that education is what to look out for if they're breathless, if they have more chest pain, uh, if they have palpitations, dizziness or blackouts. These are all things that we're reviewing at, cl at clinic follow-up. Sure. And Ed touched on the relationship between coronavirus um, when it first became known and a condition called myocarditis. Um, myocarditis, as I understand it, and do please correct me if I've misunderstood it, is characterised by swelling in and around the heart. Um, and I suppose it would be helpful to um, our listeners for you to take us through how the um, relationship between coronavirus and myocarditis came to be known um, and what the research demonstrated or appeared to demonstrate at the time. Yeah. I think it's useful just to take a step backwards and we obviously understand quite a bit more about coronavirus than we perhaps did in the first few months of 2020 when it started to um, present itself. I think what we know is there's a direct toxic effect of, of, of coronavirus, um, COVID-19, on the heart um, and that's due to direct viral binding and, and um, release from the myocardium. But there's also this indirect inflammatory response, which you've mentioned. I've mentioned about plaque instability and rupture in inflammatory conditions because it is an inflammatory condition. And that, that's one way that the heart 
um, is damaged by coronavirus. And actually, that didn't get so much press as the second thing which you've mentioned, which is the myocardial inflammation or myocarditis. Um, I have to say that I think, you know, the lay media and also there was a lot of case reports around the time um, about myocarditis um, led to this being almost at the forefront of people's minds when they were faced with a case of patient with chest pain and um, some ST changes. But actually, in reality, it's still a reasonably rare diagnosis. Um, and subsequently, we've learned that actually true myocarditis probably is still quite rare in the COVID cases. Right. Um, the other ways that the COVID can damage the heart, um, micro microthrombosis, um, because they get a, a, a disseminated intravascular coagulation. They also can get stress-induced myocardial damage just simply by the patient being very unwell. Uh, supply and demand is mismatched, and so blood supply can't meet the increased demands of a patient that is very systemically very unwell with a high heart rate and high blood pressure. Um and as a result, they can have an infarct. Um, and it's a num- there are a number of different pathological mechanisms that COVID can affect the heart, whereas myocarditis is, is only one of those things. Okay. It was fascinating that you mentioned that myocarditis and underlying um, vascular um, issues in the heart, so presumably in most, or for the most part, atherosclerotic disease can act synergistically, if I understood that correctly. Does that mean that, you know, if, if you have atherosclerosis there, then uh, the risk of something being set off is higher? I think what we've noticed um, from epidemiological studies is that if you have cardiovascular disease already and then you develop COVID, those patients had a worse prognosis. Um, right. That's maybe because it's a surrogate for patients that have, uh, who are of older age, have other comorbidities. So usually the, the sicker COVID patients had quite a lot of comorbidity and including cardiovascular disease. But the other thing is that if patients developed cardiovascular uh, complications of COVID, again, their prognosis was worse. So, um, so I think that's to bear in mind, you, you know, it, it, you know for my, to my mind, plaque rupture uh, and, um, you know, a common or garden heart attack was still a, a common scenario in the COVID uh, era. Um, and, and we shouldn't forget, we shouldn't forget that. So it follows from what you're saying, I, I think, that even at the height of um, uh, coronavirus as, as, as a pandemic, um, it would have been incumbent on treating clinicians to rule out um, a myocardial infarction in the first instance um, when they got a patient in with, with, with quite worrying chest symptoms. Is that right? I think that's I think that's correct. I mean, the, the diagnosis of myocarditis, I mean, it's, it has a very similar presentation in many respects to, you know, as I say, a, a heart attack. It's quite difficult to diagnose clinically the diagnostic tests that we've mentioned with ECG, for example, may look may look identical. Um, so you do need to do this. I think you do need to do an invasive or non-invasive coronary angiogram um, in the vast majority of patients. So, you know, it should be encouraged. It's really myocarditis in my mind is a diagnosis of exclusion. You should exclude 
the very important and time-dependent diagnosis of myocardial infarction before you're starting to consider um, slightly rarer myocarditis. And the next obvious question is, what happens if you fail to exclude it? Well, as I said, it's a time-dependent treatment um, opening the artery and patients if you miss the diagnosis and start treating myocarditis which is mainly supportive treatment there really isn't a direct treatment for the myoc- for myocarditis um, you miss the opportunity to salvage myocardium that may be caused by a heart attack and as a result patients have bigger heart attacks and have worse outcomes so they have more heart failure more arrhythmia and, and uh, you know their prognosis is impacted so it is one of those diagnoses that you know you should really be in my view you should be sure um, that the patient doesn't have a myocardial infarction before you're thinking about the diagnosis of myocarditis and the only way to be sure is to really do some form of coronary imaging right so patients have to be treated um as if they may have myocardial infarction at first instance, and then one can um, come on to consider whether myocarditis is an issue or not. But that also brings us on to the question of how patients actually presented when um, the uh, pandemic was going on. Um, In in your clinical experience, were patients often uh, noticeably sicker when they turned up to hospital than had previously been the case, or did they present with more issues? Well, I think there was a reticence for patients to present to hospital, um, both to avoid them getting COVID, but also to help the NHS. And so we were seeing later presentations. Um, so, and that obviously in, in, in itself uh, resulted in sicker patients arriving. There were clearly pathway delays. Um, our primary PCI pathway, um, although it was fully open throughout the pandemic, um, because we had to use um, protective equipment, um, uh, there were delays in delivering that. So the delays, if you like, uh, of delivering heart attack care did result in uh, in sicker patients. But we were seeing s- s- odd presentations. There was more out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. The patients were sicker. We were seeing strange things like multiple plaque rupture. Normally a heart attack may just have one culprit. And we, and I think many others, saw patients with multiple culprit vessels that had had ruptured plaque. Um, Presumably meaning that there's a greater chance of them needing open heart surgery and um, coronary artery bypass grafting rather than um, the closed heart repair, I, I guess. Well, I think it just speaks to you know the, the systemic insult that the patient was, was um, experiencing. Those patients didn't necessarily have bypass. Patients with with COVID did very poorly with bypass and, and so these were all treated percutaneously. Right. They didn't tolerate, if you like, the second injury of going onto a heart heart-lung bypass machine uh, and those patients did very poorly so we were not treating patients with bypass although they, you could argue that their anat- anatomy was such that they might have benefited but the reality was that they didn't tolerate going on bypass at all right um, but also because of, you know that the, they had multi, lots more multi-organ failure as i mentioned about this microvascular thrombosis um, these patients were really very sick 
um, and really they were, if you like, presenting with a heart heart attack, but had lots of other um, problems with other organ systems that resulted in in a very high mortality. Well, that's, that's, that's the next question I was going to ask, actually, which is, so was uh, microvascular thrombosis something which affected other systems in the body? Well, yeah, I mean, they had multi-organ failure. It was affecting the kidney. Um, they had often had kidney failure. Um, right. The lung. Um, and they had basically an acute respiratory distress syndrome picture. Uh, these patients, um, the, the very sick ones, um, the ones that had severe COVID, uh, were, were very unwell. Yeah. And uh, you and I have done cases involving um, treatment which occurred during this period. Um, and I have formulated the impression you've got quite strong views about what did happen and what should have happened. Um, what do you think are the major learning points for um, clinicians and indeed everybody else coming out of this? Um, you know, I think we've we've been learning about COVID, and we we I think we understand it a lot more two or three years down the line than we did. Um, you know, I think common things are common, and and I think we now recognise that COVID can increase the risk of a common or garden heart attack, and we should be excluding the, uh, that diagnosis before reaching for a diagnosis of myocarditis, which undoubtedly was associated with with COVID. But it was down the decision tree, down the the diagnostic um, decision tree from heart attacks. And I think we shouldn't forget that um, heart attacks are a major killer, um, were a major killer before and remain a major killer um, afterwards, uh, after COVID. And um, and that really uh, held true throughout the pandemic. And we needed to continue to screen our patients um, and make those diagnoses because it's actually something that we could do something about we can actually treat heart attacks effectively um we have effective treatments for it but unfortunately some diagnoses were missed um yeah no i i I think you touch on a very important point and um if anyone's listening to this and you know god forbid at some point later you develop any sort of chest symptoms then for goodness sake pick up the phone um and uh get it looked at fast. Yeah. I think it's important to note that you know throughout the pandemic full emergency services were available for patients um, and uh, indeed um, many um, organizations like uh, British Cardiovascular Society was w- was publicizing the fact that our pathways for heart attack were open and um, we fully staffed and ready to accept patients and should we face this again that still will hold true. Um, it's the elective work that has perhaps been put on hold during COVID, uh, but the emergency work remained um, fully available. And is there still a backlog now? Unfortunately, there is, particularly for surgery. Um, and that's not just COVID. I mean, there's a number of reasons perhaps for that, but we haven't fully recovered um, our position from COVID and the backlog of cases that we've got, um, elective cases, that is. And of course, some of those patients are now presenting acutely. Um so yes we're not quite back on track but we're working hard to try and get get, get that waiting list down well um on behalf of everyone here and um, more generally thank you for everything that you do um uh, thank yeah. you very much thank you very much Stephen and Joachim thanks very much for your time 
Thank you for listening to Legal Thinking and thank you to our guests um, for joining us on today's podcast. Uh, If you want to find out more about the topic that was discussed today, make sure to have a look in the show notes where we will have linked everything up. And you can find all of the back episodes of Legal Thinking in your podcast provider of choice. And you can also subscribe and follow us on there too. And as always, make sure you leave us a five-star review on a podcast provider of choice as that helps other people find us. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.